Broadcasting from Manhattan Beach and the World Wide Web, you're listening to CHSRHealthyLife.net. As a service to our listeners, this program is for general information and entertainment purposes only. CHSRHealthyLife.net does not recommend, endorse, or object to the views, products, or topics expressed or discussed by show hosts or their guests. We suggest you always consult with your own personal, medical, financial, or legal advisor. Bonjour. Greetings, dear listeners. I greet you in the language of my Potawatomi ancestors and my tribe today. I am Randy Kwiatkowski, co-host of the show, along with Carolyn Schmidt. This episode of Indigenous Perspectives originates not from my tribal homelands, but from Endakina, the unceded traditional territory of the Abenaki people, who for thousands of years were settled and were the stewards on the lands to be found here in Vermont, in the northeastern United States, and across the Canadian border in southern Quebec province. I begin by acknowledging where we come from, both culturally and geographically, as this program, Indigenous Perspectives, focuses on understanding our roots in Mother Earth and our connections with our ancestors. Today's topic is shamanism, and our guest is Sass Carey of Vermont. Sass is a healer and a registered nurse who, since 1994, has been traveling to Mongolia studying traditional Mongolian medicine. She became close to a small ethnic group of reindeer herders and has returned often over nearly three decades. Shamanism is an important part of traditional Mongolian culture, and Sass has attended and participated in shaman ceremonies. She has published a book, Reindeers in My Heart, which is available in English, Mongolian, and French. She has also made award-winning documentary films on nomadic life. Her nonprofit organization, Nomadicare, was founded to support and preserve traditional Mongolian nomadic life. For disclosure of my connections to SAS and her work, I am an advisor on Nomadicare's board, and I am also responsible as Nomadicare's fiduciary agent for managing and reporting their tax-deductible charitable donations. And now, for SAS Carey, over to you. Okay. Hojo Sinda Hail Gorge Hail Dashtik Samagata Hojo Sinda Goren Keji Hail Heliak Delibora Dorosinda Hail Gorge Dakrak Dashtig Samagatas Dorosinda Gorven Keji Torio Heliak Delibora Ostosinda Hail Gorge 
This is a song in the Tuvan language sung by the Duha reindeer herders in northern Mongolia and even sometimes used for ceremonies um, for shamanism. It's about honoring their native land, which, like uh, many natives in the United States, have not been able to move freely from their land. And in Mongolia, the native uh, Dukha people had a border put right between Canada, I mean, uh, Mongolia and Russia, and it's a closed border. So they're not allowed to go back to their homeland and this is a song about singing about their homeland and how beautiful it is if they look from above or below or ne- beside and how how beautiful their land is so that they miss um, because of the way governments are. So um, do you have are you going to ask questions, Carolyn? Oh, you, you said that shamanism is the original religion of Mongolia. And obviously, there's the tremendously deep cultural heritage that people are are working today to maintain and pass on. Can you start by telling us your own definition of shamanism and discuss how your understanding has grown out of your own experiences in Mongolia? Uh, what I see as the belief of shamanism is the belief that everything is alive and has a spirit. Every blade of grass, every person, every tree, every even every rock. And that for that reason, there's a certain way of moving through life when you feel connected with everything and believe everything is alive. Uh, the way shamanism works is it's not an exotic experience in Mongol for Mongolians. Almost every family has a shaman in their family. It sometimes skips generations, um, but that is the person that they go to for important questions in their lives and for health of their family and their animals. So it's not really a performance, and that's why people that are real shamans don't really even let foreigners come to or put them in the corner somewhere if they come to a ceremony. It's not it's not a performance to be a shaman in Mongolia um, with the people that I I spend time with. There are plenty of shamans that are. New shamans, in fact, it was quite shocking to me about 10 years ago, because in 1990, the government became, had freedom of religion and wasn't under the socialist thumb anymore. And so suddenly, all the shamans appeared in, in the capital of Ulaanbaatar. And there was a newspaper article that said 5,000 new shamans. And I really had a, 
ambivalent feelings about that, like maybe they've been waiting all these years from 1920 to 1990, and nobody in their family has taken over the the role of the shaman, or maybe some of them um, are interested in making money from foreigners and uh, creating the exoticness of of shamanism. So it's it's a very um, sort of secret kind of um, role that a person in in the community takes and in the family takes and it's not really advertised you have to be you have to be there and they they have to accept you and it takes time before they'll they'll let you in to the real shamans in fact, I interviewed one person who was supposedly the best shaman in, in the West Taiga. His name was Gosta. I interviewed him many times. I stayed in his orts, the orts, Siberian teepee. I talked to him. I mean, he, he jokingly called me his American wife, but I never saw a ceremony that he did. I never even saw his drum. So you can see that it's a very, um, it, you know, it has a very deep kind of sense to it that is in part of the family and part of life. It's not it's not an, a show for people. But, of course, there are people do, doing it the other way. And so it's it, it pays to discern a bit um, which one. I mean, to me, it's really a feeling in my heart or just an intuitive feeling if I, I think they're, they're a real shaman or not. Yeah, well, this, this is fascinating because you've already teased out the whole idea that there's a lot of secrecy associated with it. So by definition, some of the most important elements are not ever going to be available to people who are at all outsiders. Um, yet it's also a question of, to me, I think part of the fascination with the idea of shamanism is the idea of making more connections with the spirit world. Mm-hmm. And can you tell us a bit about why these connections are particularly important to, well, to the people in Mongolia whom you know, and then how shamans go about establishing those connections? Yes, Um I know a number of um, shamans in Mongolia of different um, persuasions. I know Buryat shamans and Darhat and and Duha shamans, and they have their a little bit different ways. Each one, um, the Buryat shamans have have a whole gear, you know, or a yurt that has uh, artifacts in it, lots and lots of artifacts. Um, one of their ancestors, who is an ancestor that they connect with a lot was uh, had had was a herder and so they have a little almost like a diorama in their uh orts uh or yurt uh that has the five animals of mongolia the horses and the sheep and goats and um and cows and has has those all represented so uh, there are a lot of parts that um the Buryats have want to have right in their in their gear when they're calling their ancestors in. So that's that's one way. Of course, 
with the reindeer herders, they live in a, an orchard teepee, so they don't have a lot of little things around. But they do have what's called an ongat, and that is uh, symbols of the spirit uh, of the ancestors. They have those, they, they have them literally in their uh, altar, which is a lot of streaming different colored ribbons. And mixed in there are their, are their, um, on guts or spirit ancestors. And that helps to call them. When they're ready to call their ancestors, they use the drum or the mouth harp and they, um, uh, for themselves to get into the trance. Usually they, I believe they use music and, and rhythm to get into that space. Whereas we know that other shamans around the world use ayahuasca or mushrooms or all kinds of different things. Um, and sometimes even Mongolians use vodka during the, during the service, uh, during the <clears throat> ceremony. Um, but it's just because the ancestor wants vodka or wants a smoke so that they sort of sit and the ancestor maybe stops speaking and then the shaman puts, puts his or her hand out and says, I need, you know, the other people, the wife or the assistant knows what he, he, want, he or she wants and so they give it to that person. I, I've had shamans say to me, like Yura, in, um, a female shaman in Ulan-Ul, in Husqvarna province, she's Darhat, and she said that she couldn't practice for a while because the spirits wanted her to drink vodka or, you know, do things that were, she felt were unhealthy for her own body since they were coming into her body. And I've had other shamans say that to me, too. In fact, one young woman was uh, told, I, who I interviewed once in Olambatar said she has been pressured to be a shaman, but she doesn't want to give up alcohol and her wild life, so she's putting it off. But the thing that happens is if you're called to be a shaman, very often, this is what I heard from other people in Mongolia, very often something, um, you have what's called the shaman disease. It could be a mental illness or it could be wandering in the woods or it, it could be um, a, a, a prob- an internal problem like uh, send this one shaman who I know knew um, had pancreatitis. I mean, it could be anything, but something that almost incapacitates them until they say yes, and they say, okay, I'll do it. And then things ease off, and they're ready. So is part of that the message that the process of becoming a shaman involves healing for the person involved because they're making these connections? Often I've heard that that to be true, yes, that those uh, shaman diseases stop when the person says yes to it. And um, can you talk a bit more about the role of the drum? I know that comes across in 
your movie ceremony that the drum is a very important part of the entire ceremony and calling calling to the spirits and entering this world. Can you talk about that some more? Um, I think you just said it, you know, <laughs> but yeah, it's about, uh, it's about the person, uh, the, the, the physical person who's under the shaman, who's part of the shaman. I think it connects them. Uh, and what was it that, uh, Yura said in the movie? She said something like, um, you can use the mouth harp or you can, and, but it, it's like a cult, uh, C-O-L-T. It's just a little, little animal that will help you a little bit. But if you really want to go like riding a horse, you need a drum. That will take you uh, the distance for the shaman to meet the ancestors. So the, the drum is animate. It, it is like a living being. It's, it's not oh. a thing. Yes. Yes. Um, when I got my drum, it was so scary, and I have to tell you, it's still scary. I mean, I have not come to peace with my drum yet. I mean, I don't. I'm I'm afraid to. I, I'm afraid to use it. Every once in a while, I use it, but I haven't really come to peace with it. And I've had it about ten years or more. So, is is part of the fear about the power, because one of the things that seems to come through with Mongolian shamanism is that a lot of these spirits on the other side have a, a strong, dangerous, dark side dimension, and they're not always friendly and happy to connect with the humans. Yes, definitely. Um, they the Mongolian people definitely believe there are two sides. There's the heal, the white healing side and the dark, um, the dark sort of like cursing side, you know, cursing each, cursing somebody. Like I've heard lots of stories about that, how somebody turns somebody into ashes and then takes them to visit someone else and that person and puts it in their food and that person gets really sick and dies or something. I mean, so there is the, the really dark shaman and the uh, energy and the really light shaman energy. And mostly, of course, I try to be around the light shaman er energy, but there's one young shaman I've been uh, visiting in the last few years and he just gets so out of control. Well, I think it was the last time I was in Mongolia in 2018 and actually they put me in this place of honor which is, it, the whole ceremony is happening inside an ort or Siberian teepee so you can see it's, it, it's about 20 feet in diameter and the stove is in the middle and there are two um, assistants that are keeping the shaman from falling into the stove when he goes into a, a trance. And so the shaman is wild. This one, the, his name is Gazla. And he's very wild guy. When he, his, let's say his ancestors are wild. And they, and they, um, have him jumping all over the place and, 
and just whipping that drum around. You know, the drums are about uh, two and a half feet in diameter. They're big and heavy, and he's whipping it around. And then last time, he actually threw it, and it landed on my foot. And it was <laughs> I my foot hurt for like two months afterwards. Like it, it took me a long time to remember that he had done that, and that was why it hurt. But there really there's a lot of energy coming through sometimes. That's oh. really intense. Okay, thank you so much. We need to take a break now, and we'll return for our conversation about shamanism with Sass Carey. Stay tuned. Citizen Potawatomi Nation's Cultural Heritage Center, located near Shawnee, Oklahoma, features 11 immersive galleries with digital and interactive exhibits. Visitors learn about the tribe's history from origin to modern days and gain an understanding of citizen Potawatomi oral traditions and lifeways. Admission is always free. Open Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., Saturday 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Visit the Cultural Heritage Center on the web at PotawatomiHeritage.com. Period poverty. If you don't know what it is, you should because you can help. One in four American women struggle to purchase menstruation products this year, resulting in missed school and even loss of income. The Native American women's nonprofit, Quek Society, cares enough to give Native American students and communities their period products, and they do it across North America. Please help women with your time, donations, or supplies to maintain their dignity and celebrate their strength during moon time. Visit QuekSociety.org. That's K-W-E-K Society. Listen up. The source for information and inspirational items about the struggle and wisdom of indigenous people is the Syracuse Cultural Workers. They are committed to peace, sustainability, social justice, feminism, and multiculturalism, and they create beautiful visual materials like calendars, t-shirts, cards, and more, including their greetings and thanks to the natural world, according to poster that offers daily grounding for our relationship to the earth and its many fellow beings. Get so many wonderful items. Go there now. SyracuseCulturalWorkers.com Randy Krakowski's book, Without Reservation, describes his spiritual awakening as a Native American. It's a powerful, life-changing story where Randy shares his journey into the realm of ancestral Native American connections and explores his encounters with Mother Earth. The book actually helps you how to reconnect with your ancestors to rekindle your access to ancestral wisdom and nature. Available in print, ebook, and audiobook format, Get Without Reservation by Randy Krakowski from all major booksellers. For more information, visit Randy Krakowski. Feel you have no control over life? There's something you can do to make a difference for you, your family, and community. Stay positive and take a break from the dark side. Uplifting and enlightening. Listen to the positive side of podcasts. HRNradio.com Welcome back to the second segment of Indigenous Perspectives. Our guest is Sass Carey, and we're discussing shamanism in Mongolia. We're going to pick up the discussion um, looking at the different experiences of different 
nomadic groups within Mongolia. Um, and I have to say that when I was introduced to this, Sass introduced me to a wonderful book called Tragic Spirits, and we'll put the link to that on our website in the transcript. And this book, Sass, and you'll need to clarify for us, talks about the Buryats, which are a more remote group from where you worked, actually not geographically within Mongolia, but a distance from where you worked. And one of the things that struck me as a historian is that the Buryats were exposed to a rather heavy dose of, you know, socialism and intolerance of religion and religious practice, which very much broke their relationship with their family trees and family records. So a lot of the shamanic work there was about restoring those lost and forgotten connections and healing relationships with neglected ancestors who in some cases had their names forgotten and they were sometimes a bit angry and took out their anger on their descendants. Can you describe these different variations within the nomadic groups in Mongolia? Um, yes. The, um, I, I, I can't really tell you exactly what the differences are because they, they're, maybe they're subtle, maybe not. Um, I have worked with the Boryat shaman and they, they interestingly enough would, would channel their ancestors, you know, speak from that person, like their voice would change and they would, they would be, have a raspy old grandfather voice. Um, uh, and, and you could tell the person was really, 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 really old and, and was coming through and wanted to, to tell things. Now, that that is not the way it, it was up in the taiga. In fact, in the taiga, um, the, they weren't as open to the Soviets and the government coming to, to close them down. But, as Nirgwe says in the movie, they had guards outside when they did ceremonies during the Soviet period, socialist period. Um, and the Mongolian shamans, I've never really, they might, they do change their voice a bit, but it, it isn't to that extreme. They, it's more like, to me, it's more like changing energy. Sometimes in one ceremony, there might be seven ancestors, but you can tell, I mean, I can tell because I can feel the energy coming through one might be calm and might one might be wild and one might be angry. And I mean, you can feel that kind of, and I can feel that kind of energy when I'm in the, in the space with them. Um, but they don't switch the voice. And I'll, let me just say this from a personal standpoint, because I wanted to talk about becoming a shaman too. And that is mostly always, as I mentioned, they have a shaman disease. Well, in 1985, I got a migraine headache and it lasted for 10 days. And it didn't go away until somebody told me I was a channeler. So I've always been interested in, he I've been doing healing and channeling, and I've been trying to understand um, what what was going on and with the headache. And when as soon as I said, okay, and my friend told me what to do, that is, talking to a tape recorder every morning for five years when I woke up in the morning. And um, I started, it 
I thought of it as clearing out the rusty pipes so that I could have a direct channel. But there were times, which I've been writing about in my memoir, where um, where other kinds of energy tried to come, come in, like totally come in. So the shamans actually become a medium. They take on that whole energy. They lose their own self, and they are someone else. When I do it, I... I channel it. I think of it almost like being pregnant with another energy, but it's I'm still there. So there are two kinds of energy going on. And I would say I have a little more control, <laughs> which is, you know, uh, what what comes out um, because I'm still there uh, watching. So as far as becoming a shaman, these people, I have never – met in Mongolia one single person who wanted to be a shaman. I think that's a really key key point for Westerners, because Westerners are like, oh, I want to be a shaman, you know, and that I've never met one, never. They always say, oh, boy, I don't, oh, you know, this is really hard. This is not what I what I want to do. And but I have to to be alive and to be healthy. If they say no, they don't get healthy, and if or they could even die from the shaman disease. So it's they know that, and they go along as much as they can with it. So in in your film, which we'll talk about in another segment, you actually you know have wonderful documentation of a young man in the process of being an apprentice. Can you talk a little bit about that transition period between being notified, called, and learning the the rituals of becoming a shaman? That that young man was so interesting. His name is Oyun Erdin. And he he was had epilepsy, which is another uh really important disease that many shamans in Mongolian have. So he had epilepsy from the time he was twelve years old when he could he went to school and he, his mother said he we had to go pick him up at school because he had such terrible um, seizures or headaches and just terrible things. And so from that time till when we met him, when he was with his teacher, Nirgoy, I think he, he was, was maybe 12 years. And all those years he was just learning about um, from different people um, how to how he needed to act. And even when Nirgoy saw him in the ceremony that we watch in the movie, um, Ayun Erdin, he, he spoke about three things that he did wrong in the movie. And one of them was he didn't have his uh, mouth harp with him and his uh, uh, spiritual things that he should have with him all the time. We'll be coming back in our other segment to talk more about this marvelous movie documentary that you made. Um, we need to take a break now and be back in a moment. Located near Shawnee, Oklahoma, citizen Potawatomi Nation is Potawatomi County's largest employer with a rich history and culture as a sovereign native nation. 
Learn more about CPN by visiting its website, which includes information on services for members, tribal enterprises, government and constitution, the newspaper, and much more. All at Potawatomi.org. That's P-O-T-A-W-A-T-O-M-I dot org. Randy Krakowski's book, Without Reservation, describes his spiritual awakening as a Native American. It's a powerful, life-changing story where Randy shares his journey into the realm of ancestral Native American connections and explores his encounters with Mother Earth. The book actually helps you how to reconnect with your ancestors to rekindle your access to ancestral wisdom and nature. Available in print, ebook, and audiobook format, Get Without Reservation by Randy Krakowski from all major booksellers. For more information, visit Randy Krakowski. Since 1975, Inner Traditions has been publishing books for the healing and spiritual journey. Their mission is to rediscover, preserve, and protect these spiritual traditions of the world so that humanity will forever have the tools to create a better future that will celebrate and heal the earth. Inner Traditions books, card decks, and other products are available wherever books, ebooks, and audiobooks are sold. Or visit innertradition.com's online bookstore. And while you're there, sign up for their free newsletter to receive special offers. That's innertraditions.com. Period poverty. If you don't know what it is, you should because you can help. One in four American women struggle to purchase menstruation products this year, resulting in missed school and even loss of income. The Native American women's nonprofit, Quek Society, cares enough to give Native American students and communities their period products, and they do it across North America. Please help women with your time, donations, or supplies to maintain their dignity and celebrate their strength during moon time. Visit QuekSociety.org. That's K-W-E-K Society. Don't get angry. Anger is a negative emotion that suppresses your immune system that may cause health problems. Make a positive difference by working together to protect and support your family, friends, and community. Take a break from the dark side. Uplifting and enlightening. Listen to the positive side of podcasts. HRNradio.com Yes, we're back with Sas Carey here talking about uh, shamanism in Mongolia, and we're going to pick up this theme of being a documentary filmmaker. So, Sas, as we're talking, one of the things that strikes me is that in some ways you're becoming a documentary filmmaker is a little bit like someone being called to be a shaman. You weren't born a filmmaker. So to put it in sort of spiritual terms, what, what called you to becoming a filmmaker? Why? What do you, what do you hope to attain? Yeah. Um, in, uh, in 1997, I worked for, with the UN in a program called water, water sanitation and hygiene. And I met some women who lived in the Gobi desert and we met with groups of people and, one of the questions we had for them was, how much water do you use in a day? And they said, five liters. Five liters is like five quarts. They use that for cleaning, washing, drinking, um, cooking, everything, five liters of water. And as I, that sat with me when I came, came back uh, to the United States, I was meditating and that thought 
of that's like one flush of a toilet in those days. That's all the water they used in the whole day. And I just had had to go. I was just told to go and show the world how this is possible. I, you know, I always took ca- pictures and camera and little tape here and there and things, but I was not a filmmaker. And everything just magically came together. Um, a cameraman who, who happened to be visiting his girlfriend who I called, who was to be a translator, he um, was a filmmaker in New York City, and he said he'd come with me and I could pay him the rate of $25 a day instead of 600 a day like New York City. But anyway, he was just so fabulous, Joseph Spade, and funny and fun, and he really knew about filmmaking. Not I, I really didn't. I mean, I've shot pictures before, but didn't know too much. So he brought his professional camera because he was making a movie there about the eagle hunters. So he had his camera and he was waiting for his team, his uh, crew to come to, to make his movie. So he said, sure, I'll go to the Gobi with you. And that's how it started. And um, he really helped me figure out how to do it. And of course I do it so differently from uh, Hollywood. <laughs> um we take pictures, we have an idea of something that we're doing, and then we interview people, but we mainly just, are, it's called a fly-on-the-wall technique. So you just have your camera there, and they're just doing their life, and we document it. And the movie comes together in the editing room. I'm not, I'm not directing people. I'm not saying, go over here, sit here, do this. I'm not choreographing it. I'm not telling them what to do at all. I remember with the Gobi women, we said, which made them laugh so much, um, every time they do any work, we're going to shoot it. And then one day they came to my, uh, or uh, Gay Airwood, and I was sweeping the floor, and they said, oh, put the camera on her. Look, she's working. <laughs> so, but anyway, uh, it kept going. Uh, then when I started going to the Taiga, I being fascinated. I really am so interested in how uh, one of the questions that you asked before about connecting with the spirit world. And I, that's what fascinates me about shamans. How do they do it? You know, I know how I do it. How do they do it? And so I, I was immediately drawn to find out everything I could um, and get it down. And I made a little tiny seven minute film in those in 2003 and I showed it at a presentation and one of and the woman who became my producer said I you need to go back you need to make more movies you need to do this and people just um it just happened I mean but that's the way spiritual things happen they happen well one of the particular things I appreciated about your film Ceremony with the, of the shaman traditions was that you filmed it one summer and then you came back the following year, you showed the film to the people involved and they explained what was going on. And then those explanations, you know, that to me that was an incredibly important layer of the film, but it involved a lot of trust and 
real relationships with the particular people you were filming. Can you explain about this process? Well, you know, my program, uh, Nomadicare, is uh, the, the whole purpose is to support and preserve the traditional nomadic life of Mongolia through stories and films and healthcare. And so we started by doing healthcare and taking vitamins and um, hygiene kits to the reindeer herders. And every year we take them, even this year in COVID, we they're just, they've been delivered. They're or they're ready to be delivered, and some people have gotten them already. In fact, I have to say this. Yesterday, I got videos of them receiving their hygiene kits and vitamins, and they're, it made me cry because one after another, they said, "Thank you, Sass, so much. I really, we really appreciate you um, still remembering us in the middle of COVID when you can't come because the border's closed and all." That. But anyway, they. So that's the kind of thing I feel it's a give and take with them. You know, I listen to them. I give them healing. The shamans always ask me to do healings for them. And I try to give more than I take with the, with the photographs and the, the filming. And I also try to be as unobtrusive as possible. You know, some people go in with great, big, huge equipment. Like if you look at the Eagle Hunters, they had, I think a million dollars worth of equipment that they were using to shoot that film. And it became a famous Hollywood film, which mine have, are obviously not Hollywood films, but I'm trying not to interrupt their lives too much when I'm there. And I'm trying to be respectful. And one other thing I want to say about making movies is if I had a choice of making a good movie or keeping them as friends, I would choose the friends and not the movie. So my movies are a little toned down, quite a bit toned down from action films and Hollywood. Well, just to keep that wonderful connection with the people. Respect. One of the things I, I, I really appreciate is that anthropologists often go in and then write up their interpretation of what people are doing. And the fact that you went back and said, here's what I recorded on film. Now you tell me in your words what you're doing has a, a level of respect and integrity that is a standard that the entire profession of ethnographers, researchers, um, you know, NGOs should aspire to. It's, it's really a model. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, we're already at our time limit for this segment. Stay tuned for segment four. Citizen Potawatomi Nation's Cultural Heritage Center, located near Shawnee, Oklahoma, features 11 immersive galleries with digital and interactive exhibits. Visitors learn about the tribe's history from origin to modern days and gain an understanding of citizen Potawatomi oral traditions and lifeways. Admission is always free. Open Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., Saturday 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Visit the Cultural Heritage Center on the web at PotawatomiHeritage.com. 
period poverty. If you don't know what it is, you should because you can help. One in four American women struggle to purchase menstruation products this year, resulting in missed school and even loss of income. The Native American women's nonprofit Quek Society cares enough to give Native American students and communities their period products, and they do it across North America. Please help women with your time, donations, or supplies to maintain their dignity and celebrate their strength during moon time. Visit QuekSociety.org. That's K-W-E-K Society.org. Listen up. The source for information and inspirational items about the struggle and wisdom of indigenous people is the Syracuse Cultural Workers. They are committed to peace, sustainability, social justice, feminism, and multiculturalism, and they create beautiful visual materials like calendars, t-shirts, cards, and more, including their greetings and thanks to the natural world, according to poster that offers daily grounding for our relationship to the earth and its many fellow beings. Get so many wonderful items. Go there now. SyracuseCulturalWorkers.com Randy Krakowski's book, Without Reservation, describes his spiritual awakening as a Native American. It's a powerful, life-changing story where Randy shares his journey into the realm of ancestral Native American connections and explores his encounters with Mother Earth. The book actually helps you how to reconnect with your ancestors to rekindle your access to ancestral wisdom and nature. Available in print, ebook, and audiobook format, Get Without Reservation by Randy Krakowski from all major booksellers. For more information, visit Randy Krakowski. Where positive people can radio unite. HealthyLife.net Welcome back to the final segment of Indigenous Perspectives and our guest, Sass Carey. Sass, let's continue talking about filmmaking. I know you had some important reflections on how films are received and made and how they record or sometimes slightly distort reality. Why don't you pick up on that theme? One thing that uh, I was very surprised about was I took the movie Migration um, back to, I I always take all the movies back to the people that are in them. So the Gobi women have seen their movie, uh, the, you know, anyway, all of them. But with Migration, I showed it in Saganor, which is the closest uh, community. It's, It's the center of the county where they go to, the kids go to school and, um, they go shopping and they go banking and go to the hospital. All those things are in Saganor. And I showed it to the the people of Saganor, and there were some Duha reindeer herders in town, too. The thing that amazed me was that those people who were their neighbors, who were in school with these people, basically marginalized them. They had no idea that they had this absolutely beautiful lifestyle in the woods, you know, and in the taiga that they were getting to see and how everything fit together with them, with their reindeer, with their milking, reindeer milk, and just the food, everything, how, and shamanism, everything fit together. And the people in, in Sayonara were, were quite surprised about that which i had no clue 
about that. And the other thing that happened with migration was um, <clears throat> I showed it in a Siberian orts or teepee on my computer, and one of the people, uh, herders, came up with his, he had a red flip cell phone that time. This was probably four years ago or so. He put it up next to my computer, and I said, oh, don't worry, I can give you a, a DVD or something. And, of course, they don't have any wa- way to watch a DVD. So he said, no, no, that is my music from Tuva, and I need to learn it. That's part of that separation that I talked about in the beginning, how they really don't have connection. And I was able to find um, music that the people allowed us to use, the Alash Ensemble. They allowed us to use their movie, their music in this in our movie. And okay. it was all their original Tuvan music. Let me clarify. Um, as I'm understanding it, you're saying that because you had the music in the film, many of the nomadic peoples and also the people in the city had had not known of this part of their culture and they were able to learn it from your film? Almost, but not the people in the city. This is when I was with the reindeer herders, the Duha. They had lost some of the music. They they're familiar with it. They knew it. They recognized it. But they had lost it. And Bassenho, this turder, who has a fabulous voice and he sings in my movie, um, he was the one he said, I just have to learn that. I need it on my phone. I need to learn this. This is part of my life. So it was an amazing experience of um sort of taking a culture back to people. Um, yeah, that, which I had no idea I was doing that. I mean, that's one of the things that happened sort of as a side side effect of following the spirit in, in whatever you need to do. So the Westerner who brought originally Western medicine um, to help people heal physically ends up unexpectedly helping the people to heal spiritually very much in the spirit of the shamans reconnecting them with their culture and ancestry. Is that an unfair characterization? Well, it seems a little bit more, but that's what I do. But um, it, it has been very, very heartwarming. That's why my book's called Reindeer Herders in My Heart, because it's just wonderful to to be around them. So just in the brief minute or two we have left in this segment, and this is a huge question, can you reflect a little bit on the degree to which um, shamanism is, in fact, accessible to those of us in the West? You know, is it a, a universal kind of a thing, um, or is it something really unique to nomadic people? No, it's a universal. It it. According to the Shaman Association in Ulaanbaatar, every country in the world has had shamans. Like, that is the basic religion of all people, that where everything started there. And that's because it's all about the intimate connections with an animate world and our ancestors. Yes, yes. 
I can I can relate to that. As you know, that's what my my book is about, and awakening yeah. to that connection is is yeah. profound indeed. So, do you see the shamanic tradition among Mongolian nomadic peoples strengthening as you've been working with them and learning from them? <laughs> Uh, I'm just going to talk about the Duha reindeer herders, and it it seems about even, I think. I mean, it's a little bit, it's possible to be a bit more open about it, but um, some of the original shamans that I worked with, Gonzarig and Gusta, their nephew, or son and nephew, is the main shaman, Gala, who I spoke about before. Uh, and I believe he connects with those two who were his who were his ancestors, his father and his uncle. Well, I think that's, that's a great closing connection to make. Um, the contact information for Sass Carey, you can reach her and her works on www.nomadicare.org. Her books and films are available, and her films are also available on Vimeo. Sass, thank you so much for your insights and what you've learned from all your experiences and brought to us. Thank you very much. Yes, Sass, Sass uh, miigwech for expanding the scope of indigenous perspectives beyond the continental and Hawaiian uh, <laughs> boundaries of the U.S., and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. I hope that this broadcast has given you time and space to reconnect with your roots in Mother Earth and with your ancestral roots. Before your busy day distracts you from this moment, I encourage you to take a few minutes to reach out and feel the presence of living flora and fauna, and perhaps that even of your ancestors. Allow yourself to touch their presence, capture that moment, and hold on to it. And if you might, write to me and let me know about your experience. I can be reached at Randy Kritkowski at hushmail.com or through my website at randykritkowski.com. Until the next show, goodbye and thanks. Located near Shawnee, Oklahoma, citizen Potawatomi Nation is Potawatomi County's largest employer with a rich history and culture as a sovereign native nation. Learn more about CPN by visiting its website, which includes information on services for members, tribal enterprises, government and constitution, the newspaper, and much more. All at Potawatomi.org. That's P-O-T-A-W-A-T-O-M-I dot org. Randy Krakowski's book, Without Reservation, describes his spiritual awakening as a Native American. It's powerful, life-changing story where Randy shares his journey into the realm of ancestral Native American connections and explores his encounters with Mother Earth. The book actually helps you how to reconnect with your ancestors to rekindle your access to ancestral wisdom and nature. Available in print, ebook, and audiobook format, Get Without Reservation by Randy Krakowski from all major booksellers. For more information, visit Randy Krakowski. 
Citizen Potawatomi Nation's Cultural Heritage Center, located near Shawnee, Oklahoma, features 11 immersive galleries with digital and interactive exhibits. Visitors learn about the tribe's history from origin to modern days and gain an understanding of citizen Potawatomi oral traditions and lifeways. Admission is always free. Open Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., Saturday 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Visit the Cultural Heritage Center on the web at PotawatomiHeritage.com. Remember, help for a positive life, www.healthylife.net.